0: We acknowledge that we are on Treaty 6 territory, the gathering grounds of many diverse First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples, whose footsteps have marked this land and whose presence continue to enrich our vibrant community.
1: Hello and welcome back to Research Recasted, the Knowledge Mobilization Podcast. I'm Dylan Cave and I'm here with Brittany Eklund, and we are joined by our guest today, Dr. Sarah Graywall.
0: Dr. Greywall is an associate professor of English at McEwen University in Edmonton. Her areas of teaching and research focus on South Asian literature, with a particular focus on Urdu-Ghazal partition literature and Punjabi popular culture. She also studies post-colonial literary criticism, race and ethnicity studies, translation studies, lyric theory, and global hip-hop.
1: Sarah won the Distinguished Teaching Award and the Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Accessibility Award at McEwen, the Outstanding Graduate Student Instructor Award at the University of Michigan, as well as a Fulbright Award for her doctoral dissertation research.
0: Hi, Sarah. It's so nice to have you here with us today. So thank you for joining us. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Um, So I guess I will dive right in and ask a little bit kind of on how you got here. So what made you gravitate towards literature and poetry and what kind of inspired you to pursue that as an academic?
2: Yeah. Um, a lot of it, honestly, was kind of just a fluke. So when I started my undergrad, I was a dance major and then uh, pre-pharmacy and then I failed physics. Oh, my god. <laughs> Pharmacy didn't work out too well. Um, and I've always been into literature. Um, my my parents are um, big readers. Um, my dad used to read, like, you know, Lord Alfred Tennyson and William Wordsworth to me when I was a baby. So um, we ha- I have that kind of background. And so... Um, I started pursuing an English major, and then um, with the Urdu, I actually didn't grow up speaking Urdu, um, but it was something that I always felt the lack of in my life, being a monolingual English speaker amongst family members who you know, would crack jokes, and I wouldn't be able to understand them. And so when I went to university, it was kind of um, one of my goals to just enrich myself was to learn Urdu and kind of ta- tap into my own cultural background that way. Um, so my intention was just to uh, learn how to speak Urdu for personal purposes, and then a friend of mine on a dare told me to take an Urdu literature class, um, and he said, we'll take it together and I'll help you, and I just fell in love with it, um, and I loved that I had this totally different window into my culture, and it, it allowed me to combine um, my love for literature with you know, m- more information about my background. Um, And so, yeah, that's kind of where it started. And my Urdu professor, uh, this is at the University of Texas at Austin. I'm from Texas, so that's where I went to university. Um, And my Urdu professor really encouraged me and and encouraged me to pursue graduate studies in this field. I mean, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's
1: pretty cool. (laughs) And can you tell me, like, a little bit about the connection to hip-hop and, like, what interests you in the genre and potential for your, like a potential avenue for your research
2: yeah so with both the Urdu Ghazal um, which is a poetic form that is often performed or, or sung um, and with hip hop you have that oral element you have the popular culture element so Urdu Ghazal is beloved across South Asia people listen to it all the time um, and you get the wordplay element so um, one of the things with both hip hop and Ghazal is that moment when you're listening to it and you kind of laugh you're like oh my gosh that was so clever right so um, so both of those genres have that element to it. Um, and they're just both things that I just love listening to or engaging with, um, but also have this much bigger political and cultural resonance beyond just that moment of like, oh, that's so fun, it is so fun. And that's what k- keeps audiences coming to these genres, um, but also they have so much deeper meaning that they, they deploy that word play in really interesting and clever and important ways and yeah. they
1: probably have similarities in in like the, the rhythmicness as well like how rhythmically complex i uh, that i'm familiar with with punjab music mm-hmm. and and uh like tabla tabla playing and how like vocalizing rhythms and stuff like that is very uh like a hip hop thing because of how much um like rhythm there is different parameters and and things like that
2: mm-hmm. Yeah, or even like the freestyle element of like playing off of your audience. So, you know, guzzles are often like written texts, but then performers will choose which order to perform the written in couplets. So which order to perform the couplets in or where to sort of pause and draw it out before delivering the punchline. Um, so or they'll do it in a way that, you know, the audience kind of is anticipating the punchline, but they'll repeat the the words prior to the punchline, like over and over to build that anticipation. And then by the time they actually sing, um, you know, that, that, word that closes out the verse which is often a rhyme word the audience will sort of perform it along with um the the singer and so in the same way i think hip-hop very much engages different audiences and is playing off of you know particularly with freestyle hip-hop you you look at who's around you and you're able to make those decisions in the moment and and that creates a lot of pleasure as well
0: yeah i mean as you're talking i think it would be a benefit um to myself and the listeners if you could explain a little bit about what urdu ghazal is
2: Yeah. Um, So it's often referred to as a love lyric, although um, part of my research is to like undo what we mean when when we call it that. Um, But, you know, if we're giving a shorthand of what it is, one of the ways that people make it legible is to refer to it as a love lyric. Um, And they're written in couplets. Um, The first two couplets um, rhyme and like in both lines and they have a refrain usually at the end as well. And then in subsequent couplets, the first line does not rhyme, and then the second line follows that rhyme and refrain. Um, so the first one is really to establish the pattern, and then the second one, or any fir- any subsequent ones, um, the rhyme and refrain only come in the second line, but it still establishes that expectation for the audience. So the audience can, you know, the refrain's going to be the same words over and over again, and then the audience can sometimes anticipate what the rhyme is going to be. Um, and then in the it's usually five to maybe... 10 to 15 couplets, so pretty wide range of how how long it's going to be. Um, and usually in the last couplet, you'll see the author's pen name. So the author will refer to themselves by their pen name in in the final couplet.
0: So is it like a form of poetry? Is it a song? Is it both? Like you mentioned it was a written yeah. form, but that it can be sung or kind of like wrapped or performed <laughs> or spoken. So yeah, I just, I'm trying to wrap my head around... Um, kind of this art form. Yeah.
2: um, I mean, again, that's like, that's kind of where this idea of it being lyric comes in, right? So when I say the word lyric, like what does that, what does that convey to you? I think of like a song lyric. Yeah. So absolutely. So that element of what lyric poetry is considered to be today is definitely there. There is a song component to it. Um, But usually the people singing it are not the poets themselves the poets themselves would have historically performed and do still perform um, the genre but more in a chanted way and they even had like you know poetry slams I guess you could think of it where they would get together and it's kind of like who's gonna they would all write for example with the same rhyme and refrain um, and they would have competitions of like who could do it best or who could manipulate this in the best way like a rap battle like a rap battle very much like a rap battle where or like they would use you know compose impromptu verses in addition to sort of preparing for these um they're called mushairas these poetry um gatherings they would also do impromptu verses that would insult other people you know other poets there so like there were disses and everything (laughs) right yeah so there's a combination of of a written text i would say most people in south asia access these um via sung performances um But there's plenty of people who also read them. Um, And again, it's a combination of, you know, Ghazal is still being composed today, but some of the most famous poets of the Urdu Ghazal are from the 18th and 19th centuries. Okay. Is
1: is there any um, artists that you think are like almost canon to to the genre that uh, people listening to the podcast should check out?
2: Um, so Mirza Ghalib is the most famous um, Urdu poet. Um, so that's G-H-A-L-I-B. Um, yes, like if he's almost synonymous with Urdu Ghazal. Um, although in my book, what I argue that there are particular reasons for that um, beyond just like his poetry is amazing. But um, so for example, he composed poetry um like he lived through what's often referred to as, um, or was previously referred to as the Indian Mutiny in 1857, but is more properly like the first um, sort of anti-colonial rebellion in India. And so he lived through that, that moment and um, the popular narrative around the Urdu-Ghazal is it actually died in 1857 um, because there was such a drastic change in the culture around um, um, Urdu and at that particular moment, particularly because with the siege of Delhi in 1857 in response to this rebellion, um, the British killed a lot of Muslims and, and poets or people fled um, or, or were exiled from Delhi. Um, most famously, in fact, the last Mughal emperor. Um, so he is sort of the person who lost the Mughal empire um, uh, after the British formally came in and and formal um, imperial rule began in 1858. He was a very well-known poet um, by the name of Bahadur shahza and he was forced to go into exile and died in sort of anonymity in in formerly Burma, now Myanmar, um, to the extent that you know the British w- who also ruled Myanmar at the time refused to even let him have a marked grave because they were worried that people would sort of venerate him. Um, and so there's this idea that you know with Bahadur Shah Zafar and with the with 1857 um and the beginning um, the end of the Mughal empire and the beginning of colonial rule that the Urdu ghazal did not fully survive that moment and it's true that it's a huge cultural break um but that narrative um, paints the Urdu Ghazal as though it's dead and it's totally not it's an extremely vibrant form that people you know my age are composing and performing um, all over the world in South Asia in the diaspora so one of the things my book is questioning is you know why why do people keep saying the genre is dead or, or wishing that it was dead um, and so with the canonization of Qalib, um, I think it helps support that narrative. Like Ghalib lived a horribly sad life. He had nine children, all of whom died. Um, he lived through the the siege of Delhi and lived from, you know, being this noble man to um, never being properly paid his dues. He was an unrecognized genius in his time. No one really liked his poetry often because it was considered too difficult. Um, and then he died in poverty and, um, you know, faced a lot of starvation after the events of 1857. So he has this terribly tragic life. Um, and people, I think, read his life as a metonym for what happened to Urdu. So he's this, you know, amazing, unrecognized genius, right. you know, um, and in the same way after, you know, after this time just couldn't survive in this new environment.
1: That's insane. And I'm sure that's just just almost grew it more than, than anything in, like, the tradition of it seems like something that that people are going to want to bring back in a big way and have
2: yeah i mean i don't want to paint like alib um you know was not exactly an um you know anti-colonial hero like he he definitely like he wrote a letter to queen victoria begging her for her patronage for example and um wrote a pro-british account of the events of 1857 but I mean, many people read this as sort of, well, poets in that day and age were, were were dependent on, you know, whoever was in power for their living. So he tried to apply the model of, well, here's what I would do for the Mughals, so I'm going to now do this for the British to try and get paid, basically. Um, but yeah, certainly like the way that Ghalib is recuperated is one way that, um, you know, this tradition lives on. But, at, you know, so for example, there's like, a TV serial about his life actually multiple TV serials there's multiple movies about his life there are um, books plays uh, dance performances' <laughs> like literally any possible way you could interpret this person's life um, you name it it's there um, but I think it's it's another way of sort of pretending like pretending that the only way to engage with this is to go back to that moment of the 19th century um, and it's a way of sort of disavowing the power that contemporary or the ghazal does in fact still hold um so for example in 2020 uh, end of 2019 beginning of um 2020 there were major protests in india and india i don't know if you know um you know muslims are in great danger and, and there's there's mm-hmm. threat of genocide in india today um for muslims so that has only you know increased and and this really one of the key moments was at the end of 2019 um there was a bill that was passed called the citizenship amendment act and in it it allowed for foreign nationals to have fast-tracked citizenship um, to become indian as long as they weren't muslim so this was sort of uh, a way of like bringing in more non-Muslims and at the same time sort of saying, well, you can't properly be Indian if you are Muslim. It also opened up something, the possibility for something called the national register of citizens. So forcing Muslims to register themselves like in these national registries. Um, And so it was, and and still is really dire for Muslims in India. So in response to this bill um, before before it passed, there were these widespread protests and people would get together and recite ghazals in protest of these, uh, of this, you know, moment. Um, and it was funny because the public response to that was, Oh, you Muslims, all you know how to do is get together and recite clausels Like you should go out there and protest. And it's like, well,
1: this is our protest. This is
2: our protest. Exactly. <laughs> um, but there's this like, this weird double legacy of the ghazal where it is seen as apolitical. Um, but I feel like that narrative is pushed in order to disavow the way that it's actually deeply political. Um, so a lot of people were sort of making fun of this as a response as, as though, you know, that's the only thing Muslims can ever do is just recite Qazil's, um without recognizing that this, this is in fact a, a historically informed and deeply meaningful form of protest.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, that obviously we've started talking about your book without introducing yeah. <laughs> your book. So, um, just for some context for the listeners, um, you're working on two books, which is a huge accomplishment because you're also a teacher and you teach Punjabi out in the community. Um, but the first book is about Urdu ghazal, mm-hmm. So, you know, we've kind of dived into it a little bit. Um, you mentioned before that the style of poetry has been considered, a love lyric and Mm -hmm. something that I'm really interested in with this project is you know what that means and then you also mentioned that in your book you're trying to undo a little bit of that idea so Mm -hmm. can we touch on that a little bit for sure Yeah, if you want to introduce your book yeah as well um Yeah, one out of two. (laughs) (laughs) Okay.
2: So the book is called The Urdu Imaginary, Nationalism and the Ghazalization of Urdu. Um, And so I've already kind of touched on what I mean by the Ghazalization of Urdu. So um, there's a sense that what Urdu is, is Urdu Ghazal. So just as Ghalib is seen as sort of a metonym for Urdu Ghazal, there's another step to that where Urdu Ghazal is seen as, you know, coterminous with the Urdu language. Like what it means to speak Urdu is to speak in poetry, um, and so that's why for and then Urdu is at the same time configured as a Muslim language. So that's why the, there's this popular idea that if Muslims speak Urdu, then all they're doing is just, you know, reciting poetry. Speaking all day in long. Gossels, yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, and so that those sort of popular ideas about Urdu are what I term the Urdu imaginary. Um, so another part of the Urdu imaginary is this idea of Urdu as a lyric genre, and this is also where Urdu's apoliticism comes in, or the supposed apoliticism of the Ghazal, because lyric poetry is often understood as deeply personal, inwardly turned um, yeah, a genre of poetry. So this comes from John Stuart Mill, who is actually writing around the same time as the um, 1857 Indian Rebellion. Um, and his definition of poetry is still deeply influential for lyric theorists today. So the idea that, um, you know, a, a lyric poetry is a feeling consul- confessing itself to itself in moments of solitude is his definition of of poetry. Um, and as I as it should be clear, that's not what urdu is. It's, yeah. you know, very public and performed and um, uh, you know, dynamic. Um, but this idea comes to dominate um, sort of the reception of the Urdu-Ghazl. Um, as, again, a way of making it seem apolitical. And I argue that that is actually a key tactic of colonialism. Um, and so there's two two things related to that. Um, for one thing, it's really ironic that then the Guzzle becomes criticized for being apolitical. Um, a, because that's not how it actually functions. And B, because um, critiques of the Guzzle along the lines of it being too lyrical um, are, are, especially unfair because even our idea of lyric actually comes from the guzzle. So one of the people that mill uh, was in conversation with was a um, very famous Orientalist named William Jones and William Jones is one of like he wrote a grammar of Persian language that was the main text that um, British colonizers used to learn Persian which was the language of empire at the time and um, and he, you know, translated Ghazals all the time. And he's one of the main ways that Ghazals came into English. Um, to the extent that, again, there's this huge craze over Ghazals, like Tennyson, although it's not well-known, Tennyson wrote Ghazals. Really? Yes. <laughs> so, the, you know, people actually knew Jones's work very well. Um, you know, there's all these translations of Hafez, who's a Persian Ghazal poet, um, you know, going on. And in English, um, in the 18th and 19th centuries. So this is sort of an aspect of Ghazals' history that has been lost um, but this is at the same time that the romantics are defining what lyric poetry is Um, and so that you know we tend to think of like oh English literature is happening over here in Britain and then whatever is happening in India is happening in India Yeah, Yeah, but but we don't see how those you know there's mutual definition happening Um, and even when we look at the history of colonialism yes we look at the way that colonialism has impacted South Asia but there's less emphasis on how colonialism impacted British culture right and so in fact the very idea of what lyric is is sort of from we can trace it back to jones in some ways misinterpreting what ghazals were um and and so that helps us define you know lyric for the romantics and then the victorians and sort of there's this long history of how lyric is defined and then it circles back around to india and they decide that ghazals are lyrics but they use that definition to um, again, criticize it. So uh, one of the stories about why the Mughal Empire had to end and why Bahadur Shah Zafar was, uh, you know, not a great ruler is that he was too busy writing ghazals to actually, you know, worry about his empire. Um, and so this is a criticism that people, <laughs> that people make. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's just kind of ironic that the same form that helped define the lyric genre comes, it comes back around and then is used as a way to critique um, the puzzle. So yeah, like it's, it's not quite so simple to just say, well, this is a lyric. I think, like I said before, it helps make that genre legible to people. But whenever we're making something legible, we have to understand the politics of, of what that is. We shouldn't assume that because there's a, lyric, quote unquote, whatever that might be in English, that there's definitely that in all other cultures around the world and that it functions in those same ways and that that definition can still hold. So this idea of commensurability as well is is important to my research and looking at how genre functions.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's such a pleasure to like you have such a rich understanding of the history and it is a genuine pleasure to like listen and learn from is where is the book um in its process <laughs> like <laughs> never there... asked that question <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i'm just wondering you know is it at a place where it is available for purchase are we <laughs> doing a draft are we in the research phase like where are we're we?
2: in the we're in the publication phase okay so yeah it's moving toward publication but not like i not to where i could give you a date or anything like that okay
0: yeah. all good we will not link to that in the episode <laughs> description
1: is there a publisher that you're working with that we could look for in the future like are, is there something like is there a publisher that will be putting it out right away
2: Uh, Not that I can publicly state because I'm not contracted.
1: Okay, (laughs) all good, all good.
0: All good. So you do have another book um, that you are working on that we're going to dive into, but I think right now is a perfect time to just take a short break.
1: Alright, we are back. So we talked about book one a little bit. Let's talk about book two. Um, tell us about the second project that you're working on.
2: Yeah, thanks. So that one I can say a little bit more about where it's at. Um, so the book is called The Varieties of Sick Experience, Dislocation, Deterritorialization, and Diaspora in Sick Hip Hop. And it's going to be out with Rutledge. Uh, don't know a date. I mean, I guess 2024 um, sometime. Um, We're just finally finalizing the manuscript right now. but that one looks at um, how Sikh rap artists use hip hop to um, express their subjectivities as diasporic subjects. And we've coined the term dislocation to um, get around the idea in diaspora studies that um, is really kind of a binary between home and host. So diaspora is you know, you're from a single homeland, and then you're dispersed or scattered from that place. Um, and with Sikhs, um, you know, there isn't really a homeland per se. So some people might see uh, Punjab as the homeland, but even Punjab has been now partitioned into India and Pakistan. Um, You know, Punjab, uh, Sikhs are under extreme oppression in in Punjab even today to where, you know, it's, Sikhs have a complicated relationship to home. So how do you theorize diaspora when there is no homeland per se Um, and so that's where we come up with the idea of dislocation which is sort of we define it as quote unmoored listlessness so um, this idea of movement as um, being propelled by oppression but also a sort of searching um, that is ongoing and continuous and that is often expressed in art and in this case in hip-hop
0: Okay. Well, I mean, hip hop. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Is this something that, I mean, you mentioned that you actually were a dancer. So like, did that interplay into choosing hip hop at all? I'm just, I know we touched on it briefly before, but I'd love to um, kind of hear a little bit more about this attraction to the, to the genre and to hip hop. And
2: Yeah. I think that's part of what we're trying to capture in our book is that um you know, for so many of us, like really every person I know um, who's South Asian or specifically sick, there is a sense that hip hop captures what we've been through, even if, you know, it's not, it's talking about, you know, predominantly the black American experience, um, the way that I put it is that it's the place for me to put my rage. Um, so particularly in 2020, when, um, the protests were going on with, again, because of George Floyd's murder, um, and there's sort of re- this reckoning with the black lives matter movement. I mean, I just walked around in an absolute fury for weeks and weeks and weeks. And, um, I don't know what I would have done with that ice cube and NWA. <laughs> Tupac, you know? Um, I really, I really don't know what, where I would, put that. And, And in a lot of ways, I think this is sort of one of the central dilemmas of our time is that everyone is walking around with all of this anger. What do you do with it? Where do you put it? Right. Um, and so for us, you know, one answer to that is hip hop. Um, but it comes back to that question is, you know, we're sick, you know, we're not black. So is hip hop a home for us? Like, um, you know what does it mean for us to see that space as the place we can go um and so you know there are so many parallels between um you know the black experience and the sick experience which is not to say that they're the same again not saying they're commensurable in any way um but even the way that the afro diaspora is theorized um where you know Africa is not a country, it's not a homeland, so where um, you know the descendants of slavery are coming from, so to speak, is a question mark, right? Um, so even their, the relationship of black Americans to a quote unquote home is displaced, right? Um, and it's a similar problem that six face. Um, so there's a line um, by Riz Ahmed, for example, although he's not one of the artists that we examine in our, in our book, um, but he says, if you want me back to where I'm from, then bruv, I need a map, right? And so um, there's this question of, you know, the, we're the, sort of the perpetual minorities, um, the perpetual outsiders. And, you know, one of the racist comments that, that Sikhs and South Asians often get is go back home. What does that mean? Right. Like, like there's this sort of, you know, in the same song, Riz Ahmed says, um, we know that there's no place like home and that stretches us. Right. So there's no place like home, but where is that for us? What does that mean for us to think about a home when there, when we don't have one? Um, and so hip hop just encapsulates that, um, both when we as South Asians listen to and engage with black American hip hop and when sick artists, um, also, you know, hip-hop of their own
0: in looking at the art form um, not just in sick hip-hop but then looking at like black American hip-hop you know maybe this is an unanswerable question but for you you know what about this genre kind of makes it conducive to capturing those feelings like it does tend to historically have been born out of people under pressure and in circumstances out of their control. Like if you're thinking of, you know, Los Angeles and the nineties and things that were happening and the hip hop movement being born, like Mm -hmm. what about the genre makes it such a good place to house those feelings that you're talking about?
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm very much leaning on the work of black hip-hop scholars here. So, um, you know, I can plug the work Black Noise, which is sort of the fundamental book of hip-hop studies by Trisha Rose. Um, Imani Perry in her book talks about this. It's called Prophets of the Hood. Um, and so there is something... Um, I mean, if you look at the way hip hop was born, so you referenced LA in the nineties, but hip hop actually was born in the late seventies and early eighties in the Bronx. Um, and if you, I teach about this in a class here at McEwen as well. Um, if you look at what was happening in the Bronx, it is shocking. So just, this is just one element. There were over 12,000 fires in a single year in the Bronx, um, in the eighties. And so many that, you know, the, the fire trucks wouldn't even go back to the fire station. They would just oh, yeah. go to the next one, um, or you could just expect that maybe one wasn't coming. Um, and so literally the Bronx was burning. Um, and at the, so there's this total sense of displacement. How did it come to this? It was literal um, just... I don't know how to put it, like racism, like, um, so there were actually these very stable housing units for low-income people in the Bronx that were these beautiful multiracial communities. And um, city planner Robert Moses decided to build a highway directly through these housing communities. Um, And so all of these people were displaced. And so that sense of community was similarly displaced. Um, So again, just the way that the urban landscape was like he could have built it a different way very easily. And he intentionally chose to displace these people. So again, we're looking at displacement from a sense of home, right. As driving um, the beginnings of hip hop. So in that you get people um, you know, what happens when you don't have access to instruments or musical education, which have always been, you know, to a certain extent um, you know, there's been some gatekeeping or access issues. Um, You make music out of whatever you have in front of you. And if whatever you have in front of you is a record player, um, you find ways to make that remarkable, right? And you find ways to disrupt that. And that's one of the things that I think is just so fascinating about the history of hip hop is how these artists literally created art out of nothing
1: going back to like grandmaster flash Grandmaster flash yeah
2: yeah, like the way that he pioneered scratching or like you know manipulating the records to catch that break beat um yeah just it's it's absolutely incredible the way they're able to manipulate the technology one um one early hip-hop pioneer grandmaster kaz um although this is you know not necessarily a Uh, It could be, it's a disputed narrative, let's say. Um, But one of the things he says is that in one of the so-called riots that happened during a blackout in the Bronx, that there was a musical equipment store that a lot of people sort of looted. Um, And he says, well, that's what helped hip hop (laughs) happen, is that now all of this instrumentation, all this technology is out on the street and in people's hands. And, um, you know, creating that access where there isn't any um, is one of the things that that drove early hip-hop so yeah i mean hip-hop is inseparable from that history so um you know initially hip-hop was about djing and MCing. you know came later on in the movement um but of course you know the message is one of the earliest you know quote-unquote conscious hip-hop songs right and even today people cite the message as i listened to that song and i thought okay you know, this is what I need to do as well. So as much as hip hop was, you know, just a fun party music, it was also from a very early stage talking about the conditions that the artists were facing. So yeah, the two are just really inseparable.
0: I'm, yeah, I don't know much about music history. That's definitely Dylan's forte, but I just want to say like, Thank you for that perspective because I've never thought about it as, you know, the gatekeeping aspect of, say, music lessons or, you know, a piano or something, creating an environment where people were making music out of music because that's what was available. So it's a really interesting perspective. So, yeah. and
1: even going like laying the foundation for sample culture and, mm-hmm. and bringing. Which is so huge now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, well, it's, 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 it's a touchy. St- touchy subject as well like james brown's drummer clyde stubblefield was one of the most sampled drummers in the world and never made a penny off of it mm-hmm. yes. and you know things like that and um i was going to say something before but i i it, it slips slips my <laughs> mind oh um so so we uh a local hip-hop artist named shad Mm -hmm. Uh, put out that documentary. He was a Mm -hmm. host of the documentary hip hop revolution. Yeah. And I've been kind of working my way through that. And I thought it was a really nice, an interesting take from a a Canadian hip hop artist going and getting an American hip hop culture, um, history, the Mm -hmm. history of hip, the hip hop evolution.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, And on this project, you have a kind of an interesting partner. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about how you and your husband came to work together on this book? Yeah, it's a funny story, actually. Um,
2: So I had applied, you know, I was thinking about this and I had done a little bit of writing on it and I had applied to present this work very early versions of this work at a conference and when I heard back from the conference organizers, I saw that my husband was on the same panel because he had also submitted an abstract to talk about Punjabi Hab. <laughs> and we did not know that. That was not planned. So I was like, oh, I'm going to Michigan for this. And he was like, I know, I'm going for this too. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um,
2: and so, yeah, it, you know, we don't, we hadn't formerly like you know, often talked about our work. Like we met in graduate school and, and, and have been working or, you know, talking to each other about this stuff for a long time. But at the same time there, you know, we've been trying to, we had been trying to sort of set limits. So like, you yeah. know, we can't always bring work home. <laughs> um, but at this point it was just silly to not collaborate when obviously we're thinking about the same things and engaging with the same things. Um, and now, especially like we have two little girls and um, we try to, exclusively listen to Punjabi language music to help them, you know, support their language skills. And so one of the things we listen to is Punjabi rap. And, um, so it's just kind of in our ear all the time. Um, and so it's uh, for, with both of us, my, my husband is a six studies professor at the university of Calgary. Um, so with both of us having this academic background, um, it's inevitable that we would begin to theorize it. <laughs>
0: Okay. I mean, I just thought that was a really cute thing that you guys had no idea that either of you were both <laughs> yeah. going to like do this thing. Yeah. Um. So we're starting to run a little bit low on time, but something that we really want to talk about before you go um, is that you also do work out in the community as a teacher. Um. So I'm kind of curious, Um. you s- teach Punjabi? Mm-hmm. Um, in the set community, uh, and you mentioned that in that you do try to incorporate some things like, um, you know, topics on masculinity, colonialism, and racism, which is, you can be big topics, especially for younger <laughs> children. So yeah. I'm just kind of curious about, you know, how as an academic, those roles, you know, community language teacher, and then a professor who's like tackling colonialism, yeah how that all interacts and, and, you know, what attracted you to to working in the community as well? Um,
2: So (laughs) I mentioned that, you know, we really try to support our kids' Punjabi language um, development at home. And that means that we really try to get them only speak in Punjabi. And um, they are very resistant to that. It's, you know, it's just crazy how colonizing English still is today. and so we just realized, you know, if we're having this problem and we are like professors and we know this language so well and we love it so much and we know so much about it, you know, how much must this be like very widespread problem? Um, my husband's also very involved in um, the local gurdwaras here. So, um, you know, they sort of asked him to take over as principal of the Sunday school. And then I sort of joined from there as well as one of the teachers. Um, so we we developed this um, curriculum: A couple of things. So, um, most of our students are heritage speakers, so they do at least. For the most part, there are some, particularly this year, that don't understand it at all. But for the most part, they do at least possibly understand Punjabi, even if you know they're at different levels of speaking. Some are very fluent, some are less so. Um, So we primarily focus on reading and writing. Um, And so one of the things that I did is I compiled a list of the most frequent words that occur in Punjabi. And then I counted how many times each letter is used. And now I teach the letters in order of frequency rather than in order of the alphabet. Um, That's very smart. Yeah. So that <laughs> the students can actually read basic sentences by week two or three. Um, and the goal with that was that before, like there's 40 letters in the in the Punjabi alphabet and 10 vowels. And so the traditional way of teaching it is you teach it in order, then you teach the vowels and then they can read. Well, kids are not going to be <laughs> motivated by that, right? So the idea that they can actually begin reading by week two is what keeps them coming and keeps them feeling like, you know, they have some confidence and that this is worthwhile. Um, so Uh, by the same token, um, part of constantly talking about colonialism, for example, or racism or oppression that Sikhs face is to emphasize to the students, like, why do you have to give up your Sunday morning to be here, right? Or in this case, we also run a a summer camp that was seven weeks long. Um, So for seven weeks of your summer, you're coming here for three hours every day. Why do that? What is the point of that? And so part of it is teaching them that, Um, This is not just a thing that your mom and dad are forcing you to do, but that your ancestors have literally died for this language, right? And why have they died and why um, is Punjabi in danger of extinction, right? And so that necessarily gets us into big topics. And so at an age appropriate level, I do try to bring those things in um, because for me, they're inseparable, right mm-hmm. um i also think you know my my kids um <laughs> they were very young and i've taught my kids about colonialism basically since they could talk um and so i remember at one point um you know i was telling them speak punjabi like stop speaking english and they're like but you're an english professor
0: are <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <they're laughs> you know? like, yeah
2: super <laughs> right so uh does that mean you're colonized <laughs> you know like and totally calling me out and so i was like yeah, it kind, of, it kind of does mean that, right? And so I mean kids will force you to confront things about yourself that you don't want to face. Um and so that's also what propels me to keep working in the community is that for me that's um the actual like on the ground um decolonial work that I'm doing is like connecting um second and third generation Punjabi kids with their religion and their culture and their history. Um, Is so much more meaningful in a way—not more meaningful, but it's just as meaningful as you know connecting. Basically, those kids shouldn't have to wait to adulthood to learn about that history.
0: I don't think any kids should. Like, I do think that you know we're living in a time where critical race theory is kind of blossoming and becoming a thing, while also under a huge, intense amount of fire, but. From my perspective, as a fairly liberal person, I do think for a lot of people, confronting issues around, say, race um, mm-hmm. aren't an option. Mm-hmm. So everyone should kind of start learning about it when they're younger, not until, you know, you wait until you're in university and you're like, whoa. Mm-hmm.
1: Even learning more languages, you know, mm-hmm. um, I, I'm second generation Canadian from a Dutch family. Uh, and I they my Oma spoke so much Dutch when I was younger but would never teach me or never wanted us to know it mm-hmm. and it, I've always felt kind of robbed of that so yeah. I, I always wanted to know more about my family's lineage but it's it's kind of like a, a past that they wanted to cut off because they fled um Holland during the Holocaust mm. and it was not uh I don't know they, they were yeah. fleeing something it's that they wanted to trauma. get away from
2: yeah. yeah and I totally get that and but what the, It's exactly that thing. Like I I mentioned that I grew up monolingual and then it wasn't until I was in university that I was like, Oh, I've really lost something here. And yet, um, you know, when I speak Urdu or Punjabi today, I'll never speak it as naturally as a native speaker as if I had, you know, spoken it growing up, even though it's primarily what I speak at home. Um, and so I think I don't, I don't want kids to get to adulthood and then realize the loss, but when they're kids, they don't realize,
0: you know, so it's it's
2: kind of like, you have to tell them like, trust me, you're going to regret this later. Mm -hmm. Right. And, um, and again, I think at the same time, a lot of parents that come from, um, you know, other places don't realize what kids are facing, um, every day in Mm -hmm. school. Right. And so I think kids need it a way to make sense of those experiences. My husband and I were both born in North America. Um, and so we get racism in a way that, you know, maybe not everyone does, right? If you're fleeing something from over there, you're not, and you're thinking of this place as safer, you're not necessarily paying attention to all the ways that it's not safe, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then if parents are working multiple jobs and um you know they're doing the best they can to provide for their kids maybe they're not plugged into oh
0: he's getting bullied every day because of
2: how he looks
0: or you know the yeah. language he yeah well in right? canada's painted as a melting pot we're a cultural mosaic but that i think gives a false impression that racism is not an every single day occurrence yeah. here for many racialized people yeah um, if not most so yeah if you are coming here, you know, same thing with the American dream and not realizing that you're going to have to go work three jobs and it's, it's not really. Um, so yeah, building a community and learning that language. And even just with literature, if you don't understand or you don't speak a language, it's really hard to get that nuance Mm -hmm. and to understand literature, poetry, jokes, Mm -hmm. jokes are a huge thing. You can't translate a joke usually very well.
2: Yeah, exactly. Idioms so don't trans- idioms don't translate. Yeah, any yeah. Language, you lose a you know? lot of nuance. So. Yeah, and so it's kind of like you know you're neither here nor there, right? And so you're you're never going to be accepted as white, and you're going to be bullied for how you look and for your culture, and yet you don't even really have access to that culture. And so I mean, at the most basic level, I hope that you know through our community work, we're opening up a space where kids can at least come talked about those things with adults that can guide them. You know, I feel like every kid, every single kid has the right to an adult in their life that can be a mentor. That's not their parents, you know? Um, so I would, I would love to be that for, for our kids
0: in, in the community. Well, it sounds like you're very busy.
2: So, <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> can I just plug one more thing? Well, I was
1: just going to say, yeah. I wanted to leave this with you. And okay. if there's anything that we didn't touch on today, I just want to leave that with you. And okay. uh, the floor is yours.
2: Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So kind of along those lines where we ended with, um, you know, youth having access to mentorship, I've just gotten involved with a project. Um, it's called Punjabi community health services, Edmonton or PCHS Edmonton. And, um, that's, One of the initiatives that we have, um, we're a very successful organization over in Ontario and in Calgary, where um, it's been longer established there, but we're just getting started in Edmonton. So um, we provide support for uh, domestic violence, for um, addictions and substance abuse, and also for youth mentorship. Um, So we're still, again, getting started. We're in very early stages, but um, I do wanna plug that organization as something to watch out for as a future resource for Punjabi and South Asian Edmontonians looking for support. Is there a website
0: that we can link to?
2: Um, Yeah, it's pchs4u.com
0: And we will throw a link in the episode description if you want to check that out. Yeah. Well, perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you so
1: much for joining us today. Thanks for having Uh, me. Yeah, that's great. Well, that's it for today's episode of Research Recasted. If you think this podcast is hip and you'd like to hop on board, you can visit Research Recasted on your favorite podcasting platforms to find a new episode every two weeks.
0: Also, check us out on Instagram at Research Recasted, where you can leave a like, give us a follow, or send a message if you have any follow-up questions from today's episode.
1: Like I said, this has been Research Recasted, a knowledge mobilization podcast brought to you by the Office of Research Services and the Faculty of Fine Art and Communications at McEwen University. Research Recasted is hosted and produced by Dylan Cave and Brittany Eklund. Music, sound design, and editing are by Dylan Cave. Today's session was engineered by Renette Schaubert with research, copy editing, and scripting by Brittany Eklund. Our executive producer is Ray Burry.